my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. What should, what can machines do the theory's been around for a long time what wasn't really there was the computing power to actually make it real a couple of us met debugging video games the reason that we started the company is because we were unemployable you know we were 20 and we thought we were smarter than anybody and we didn't realize we had a lot of stuff to learn so we just figured we'd give it a go Hi, I'm Bob Pittman. Welcome to Math & Magic Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing, where we explore the impact of great marketing and how it's developed. Today, we have someone who's been through many pieces of the marketing puzzle himself. He's the EVP and COO of IPG, Philippe Krakowski. 
Philippe embodies the modern model of marketing. Speaks three languages, born and raised outside the U.S., but he's also fluent in data, communications, traditional advertising. He speaks tech, brand position, and communications as well. He started a while ago as an AI pioneer and then came to advertising. Like Maurice Levy at Publicis, he has an iconic story of personal corporate bravery. His judgment and insights have defined his career, and his interpersonal skills have helped to build and support an extraordinary management team at IPG. And he and I have a special bond I'm sure he doesn't know about. I'm a preacher's kid. He's a preacher's husband. Philippe, welcome. Thank you. Boy, if anybody could see me, I'm blushing. We have lots to cover today, but before we do, I want to dig into you in 60 seconds. Ready? Yep. Do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Twitter or Instagram? Instagram. New York City or Mexico City? Ooh, that's a tough one. My hometown, but New York City, I've been here a long time. Call or text? Text, because I got kids at an age where that's actually the only way they respond to you. Early riser or night owl? I'm a night owl. Wheat la coche or caviar? Ooh, wheat la coche. Of course. It's about to get harder. Secret talent? Can nap on a dime anywhere at any time. <laughs> Smartest person you know. The preacher you mentioned though, that I'm married to. Childhood hero? Nelson Mandela. First job? Making beds at the Sir Francis Drake Hotel. Historical idol? Abe Lincoln was pretty cool. Who would play you in a movie? I'd play George Stephanopoulos, or so I've been told. So Good. I'd That's say it. there's probably a similarity there. Proudest personal achievement? Probably my kids. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Salted caramel. What did you want to be when you were growing up? A <laughs> professional soccer player. <laughs> favorite smell? Ooh, never been asked that. Mexican food. Best live concert? Well, my first live concert, early to mid-70s, was the Doobie Brothers. Let's jump in. Okay. When Michael Roth, who had a full career in corporate America, moved into the CEO a job at IPG with no advertising experience, it's been said you were the one who helped him navigate and understand the advertising business. that accurate? It was an interesting opportunity where I think that the company needed somebody who had his skills. There was a moment right at the beginning when we'd brought some management consultants in to take a look at what was going on inside the company. And Michael said, we need somebody riding shotgun with them who really knows the business. So he gave me that opportunity. And then that's how we got to know one another. And We've been working together now for ugh, 17 years. I've jumped into businesses I knew nothing about. I know. And there was always... It worked out pretty well. It did work out pretty well. But there was always somebody who did help me go, oh, no, no, let me explain throughput to you, the theme park business or whatever it was. Clearly, you have been that person. How do you say, okay, these are the first 10 things I ought to talk to you about and bring you up to speed on? I don't know that you actually do it quite in a way that's that methodical and systematic. I think you kind of get thrown into the deep end of the pool, right? And so you sort them with a combination of here's a rank order of what you need to understand to get oriented in this world, and here's the thing that just landed on our lap today that needs to get resolved, and let's just get after what we need to understand so we can clear this one off the plate. In a business like ours, so much of it is the personalities and the talent. It's as much about figuring out who are these people, what motivates them, how are we going to get them focused and working as a team, and then what's going on at a macro business trend level. It was an organic process. So over the last two years or more, in the vast majority of quarters, IPG has outperformed the overall industry in organic revenue growth. 
was having a CEO who was an exceptional business person, but fresh to the business, a part of the secret sauce for you? Sure. We've spent a bunch of years now differentiating ourselves in a couple of ways. One is investments in the talent and not making the story about us, but making it about how we support and give the right kind of stage to the agency brands, then how we get them to work together, how we orchestrate a way of working where you get the most because you're getting the right answers, not the silo-driven answers. And then last, the combination of starting to stir in data science, that rigor of tech with the art of and the craft of traditional advertising. I want to dig into those, but before we get into that business part, I want to go back to the beginning. I want to get some context on you. You mentioned you were born in Mexico City in the 60s. Tell us about your family and paint a picture of your childhood and Mexico City in that era. It's always been a big city, so I guess I'm a big city kid. I like being in a place where there's always something going on. I'm kind of a mutt, so I've got a lot of European and some Latin American. I'm an immigrant who didn't speak English when we moved here as a kid, but I was actually already a U.S. citizen because my mom's grandfather left Romania in the late 1890s, moved to the U.S., and was a railroad engineer. All his kids were born in the U.S., were born American citizens. They ended up in San Francisco when the big quake hit, and his wife took them all back to Romania. Wow. In like 1909 or something. My mom did some of her growing up in New York. My parents actually met here. And my dad just lived in a bunch of places growing up because his dad's business took him to most of Latin America. My dad actually spent his high school years in Cuba pre-the revolution. When did you leave Mexico? I was about eight in 1970. And you moved to? San Francisco. What did you bring from Mexico with you? I mean, Mexico in that era had that very robust creative scene there. Mm -hmm. Did that affect you in any way? Did it come with you? It was an interesting mix. There's a lot of creativity. There was great architecture going on at the time. There was a lot of sort of social stuff going on. I mean, there was the political scene was a version of stuff that you were seeing in this country in the 60s. There's a certain kind of curiosity, restlessness. You're open to new ideas. I think the expectation is that life's going to be growing interesting stuff your way. You go to San Francisco. Yep. You wind up at Harvard. Why Harvard? <laughs> it was curiosity. I had no experience and no reference points that would have led me to believe that it was going to be good, bad, or indifferent. It was just sort of a, if I don't try it, I'll always ask myself why I didn't try it, so I'll give it a go. And what'd you major in? Comparative literature and linguistics. That's a good preparation for AI. I paid my way through school by programming computers. What do you think college did for you? How did you change? It was less about the formal classroom part of it and more about figure out who you are and figure out how to fend for yourself and just figure out what really interests you. You leave school. Yep. You were on a team that built and ultimately sold an artificial intelligence company in Apple. What is interesting about this is this was a while ago. This was really early. I'm not even sure most people who said AI knew what you were talking about at that moment. What was your role on the team and what did you see in AI at that moment? A lot of the ideas and a lot of the, for instances, what should, what can machines do, the theory's been around for a long time. What wasn't really there was the computing power to actually make it real. 
the ideas were really just cognitive science. What's your brain do? How does it work? Why can a computer do or not do some of those things? A couple of us met debugging video games, got really interested in some stuff that Alan Kay was doing with Smalltalk at the time. The reason that we started the company is because we were unemployable. You know, we were 20 and we thought we were smarter than anybody and we didn't realize we had a lot of stuff to learn. So we just figured we'd give it a go. And how'd you sell it to Apple? We build programming languages and tools for the very early Macintoshes. And eventually we wanted to use the tools to build smart applications. And we could never quite get out of our own way. So we'd put a product into market and then we were learning that there were lots of issues around, oh, you know, customer service and... And <laughs> keeping our name out, right. all yeah. those things, right. So there were four of us, and we kept at it for a while, four or five years, trying to do it ourselves. And you know, we had a really nice niche company, but eventually a couple of folks came calling. And I think we all kind of burnt out a little on the work and maybe even on each other as partners. And so it was the right time. So you go from AI <laughs> to advertising. How did that happen? What was the catalyst? I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a tech guy forever. And at the software company, I'd been the interface to the rest of the world. So I'd done all of our outreach. I'd written business plans. I'd dealt with the public, as it were. I'd helped us figure out and pick our design firm and do our advertising. And ad agencies seemed like a place where I could get exposure to lots of other industries. So there was a very creative agency in New York at the time called Levine, Huntley, Schmidt, and Beaver. So I met a couple of the guys who ran it, and they had a tech account or two, and they were interested in seeing if we could do something together, and I was interested in learning about the beer account they had and the car account they had, and so I did business development for them. So the bug bit you? Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) By 1991, you were the Senior Vice President of Corporate Communications for BBDO Worldwide, and then you went to Y&R, 1996. Mm -hmm. I mean, all big names, big jobs. The internet was just emerging then. Did you feel the impact right away of the internet on the advertising business, or did you foresee the impact on advertising? Coming from tech, I may have had the advantage of having more exposure to it than a lot of folks in the business. At BBDO, where I got to work with Alan Rosenshein and Phil Duesenberry, who were you know real kind of legends in the business, it was fun to have them say, what is this thing? What should we do about it? You could see that it was going to have a really lasting impact, but even when you can see the wave and you think it's coming at speed, it takes a certain amount of time to actually kind of break on the shore, right? Some people are welcoming and some people are kind of hoping that you just go away and leave them alone. I was at AOL in that period. From our side, it didn't look like what happened was going to happen. We were just, well, can't we get some money for advertising? And I can remember meeting with one of the top one or two banks in America's CEO and I go, you need to be on the internet. And he goes, well, I don't know. We're not sure we need to be on the internet. This was the late 90s by then. And the same period you were in advertising at YNR. What was on the other side of it? What was the discussion inside the agencies? And who were the people pushing back? The folks who have the most to protect or the most to lose will invariably have the hardest time coming to grips with the reality. Folks who are at a point in their journey, career-wise, They'd rather hold on for just a little longer and not have to either admit they don't understand something or dramatically change their behavior. It was definitely easily 50-50, if not you know more. They either didn't want to hear it or they only wanted to hear it if you told them that they were going to get to control it, that once you helped them solve it, it was going to end up in their fiefdom, in their P&L. So 
Now we get to IPG. Why did you make that jump? I had been at YNR when it was acquired by WPP. I had chosen not to stay at WPP, and so there were a group of senior folks who left when the merger took place. The IPG was kind of a famous name, you know, stable of companies, many of them really well known, that had fallen on some hard times. And so that seemed interesting. From the outside looking in, it was like, okay, they've got to be kind of getting to the point where if you show up, you could help turn it around. And it took a little while longer than that for it to find bottom. What did you learn from BBDO, YNR, even your AI venture that gave you something unique for IPG? It's like a mosaic. It's a combination of things. So the tech thing has been sort of underlying for a long time, working at Levine Huntley, which was a creative boutique agency, and BBDO, which was a big global network that prided itself where the USP was creativity. So I kind of had that piece from those guys. YNR was early in the integration game, and so they talked a lot about trying to get the various pieces of this emerging marketing puzzle to work together. What was great about it was just learning how the various pieces worked, what a direct agency did, what a media department was all about, how you made money on PR. That gave me this breadth of exposure to so many facets of the industry. There's a moment in time when you can start pulling them together and solve some more complicated kinds of problems. So let's talk about crises for a minute. We started at the beginning, and I said, you've got a story. One of those legendary stories of somebody who had to go, I got to go do this. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but this is the right thing to do in a board meeting. Can you tell that story? Michael and I, and then Frank, our longtime CFO partner, Frank Mergenthaler, all kind of came in through different doors within the space of about a year, a year and a half, none of us having known one another. And um, in those early days when you had a big company that had been put together through a lot, a lot of acquisitions, none of them particularly well integrated. And then just prior to a financial crisis, when it all hit the fan, it got pretty messy and pretty complicated for a while. In that moment of crisis, it was just sort of people pushing other people out of the way to get to life rafts. And so there was a board meeting at which Michael was talking to our board about many of the problems that the business had. And I ended up getting a call from a journalist in which some of what was actually being discuss in that room. So Michael and I have this funny moment where I walk into the boardroom to tell him about stuff that's happening in the boardroom. (laughs) So I think for both of us, it was indicative of how crazy things were at this company. Stories I've heard is that you got a lot of credit for being willing to walk in and say, wait a minute, stop. There's something going on you don't know about. I've never quite heard that happening before in real time, but certainly made your mark. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my, from this idea of what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. You have had the top communications job, the chief strategy and talent officer, and through some other jobs to finally the, the COO of the company. I'd like to talk about some of the big marks you've made. I see two real key ones. One is data, digital, and tech. And the other, quite different, is diversity and talent development. And I'd like to start with data. You embedded in all areas of IPG this sort of tech and digital wherewithal 
and of course the $2.3 billion purchase of the data marketing service Axiom. How did all this fundamentally change the capabilities of IPG and differentiate it? I think when you started to see technology accelerate and the ways in which people behave, the way in which they take information on board, the way in which they share information, the way in which they literally just navigate the world, it became really clear that we needed expertise in that. There was this funny kind of bifurcation that happened in the sector where some of our competitors went out and started buying that. And the question that we kind of came to was, if you buy it and it sits in its own silo and it's kept away from the rest of your world, what do you really get for it? And then on top of that, you're paying a multiple for a very fungible set of assets. So we tried to bootstrap as much of that as we could inside of the various companies. So we would sit with agency leaders and say, if these are the trends that we think are coming, then what are you going to do to kind of evolve your offering so that you can stay relevant in that world? And then what do we need to get you in the way of resources? We actually kind of built a lot of it over time, which was different than most of our competitors. And then as it's picked up speed and the complexity has grown, we've built a programmatic business inside the company. So you did that inside the company. How did you work with the other side of it, iHeart or other media companies, folks like us? It's that combination of the data, the tech, the platform, understanding where that is going is key in sorting out how you incorporate that and marry that up to the comm side and the craft side of the business. But then, you know, it's all clearly going to come together. And so finding partners who are also looking to take their part of the ecosystem and evolve it or enhance it trying to be clear with people about what you're trying to accomplish and hearing what they've got to say and then just trying stuff out. There's a lot of test learn, a lot of not get it right, or being smart about where the opportunity is right for a particular client or for one of our agencies where they're going to be able to lean in and partner up with a media owner or a technology company. You had one big giant there, yep. the Axiom. Why did you need it and how has it helped you? You kind of need it because... Without expertise and breadth in whether it's the data asset or whether it's the data management business, I just think it's harder to figure out how you evolve fast enough or compete in the world we're in. We used to talk about the demographics of an individual or the media behavior of the individual, but I think at this point, all behavior is going to be mediated by some kind of a device it's going to mean that everything about people's lives is addressable. The upside of that is, okay, I can make it so that things are more relevant for them, so that things are more valuable to them. The downside, which we see and hear a lot about, which is the surveillance part of it or just the creepy part of it. And so if you're not really, really expert in and you can't take data and make it both a differentiator and something that gives you the credibility to, to put you kind of on the right side of that divide... I don't think you got a terrific future as a business. So as important as data has been for IPG, it might be argued that your diversity and inclusion drive has been even more powerful. Talk about how you see the power of diversity in an organization. You know, it's a big focus of ours going back a long, long time. Coming from an industry not ours, Michael sort of saw that marketing and advertising was behind. I'm kind of a mutt. So if you're used to being the mishmash of perspectives, worldviews, languages, whatever, you're going to just bring different kinds of perspectives to any kind of problem. 
for us, it is a marriage of the tech side of the business and then the people side, which is the ideas and how powerful the ideas are and the creative product. And in that regard, if everybody's the same, what you're going to get is clearly not going to be as good as if you had a culture where you're more welcoming of our very broad range of backgrounds and experience. We're still probably the only company in our direct set that compensates execs. Part of your annual incentive compensation is connected to how you're doing on what we've collectively identified as some of our DNI aspirations and goals. So, Daryl Lee, Eileen Kiernan, Lynn Lewis, many others, you've got this superstar group of executives. How do you build a culture which allows them to thrive and builds the next generation of them? It's really obvious stuff. It's say what you mean, encourage people to know that they can speak their mind and that's not an issue. If you say you're going to do something, do something. We're very flat as an organization. A lot of our execs appreciate that they can walk into our offices. So we talked a little bit about silos, but silos are falling in advertising as they are in every business. How are you breaking down silos to make that a reality? I mean, a little humility goes a long ways, right? So you kind of say to yourself, can you both model behavior and ask people to acknowledge nobody's going to have all the answers? So just raise your hand and say, I don't know. What we're solving for is complicated. So if it's going to be a team sport on any given day, you're going to be configuring that team in a way that's different. So for certain kinds of engagements, somebody's going to lead. And for others, that person or that organization is going to sit in the second chair or the third chair. All of us are really good at two or three things, but everybody in this world says, oh, I can do eight things. I can do 10 things. I don't want to either leave you know, money on the table or be perceived of as not the best at even some of the most cutting edge stuff. And so what are the three things you guys are really good at? And those are the ones that we're going to then make sure that you as an organization get pulled in on every opportunity to bring those to the table human beings are human beings. So if you encourage them and acknowledge their contributions around the things they really are good at, that helps a long ways. How you pay people helps in the same way that around DNI, we tie incentive compensation to that. We tie a meaningful amount of incentive compensation to what we refer to as collaboration. And it gets people's attention when you're thoughtful and rigorous about the end of the year saying, hey, here's how you guys did on these things. And We'll sit with you and take you through where we thought you were terrific and where maybe you didn't play so nicely with the other children and maybe even where that is going to cost you and your organization some money. What advice would you give someone who wants to wind up in the advertising business where you are? Somebody on their way up. I don't know that I set out with a very specific plan. It wasn't I'm going to get from here to there. It was I'm going to do things that are interesting, solve problems. If some things are more interesting than others, I'm going to ask to do more of those kinds of things. Getting things done and not sweating too much what you're being called on a given day, whether it's from a title perspective or sharing the credit or not, I think helps a lot. The one that I think becomes more apparent as you get further along in your career is working with people who you respect in an organization where there's commitment to behaving in a certain way and integrity and where you're like, hmm, I feel good about who I'm working with, that's a lot more powerful than people usually realize. So let's take the advice to IPG. You got a lot of people working there, thousands and thousands and thousands. Someone there listening to this 
wants to make their mark on advertising within the career at IPG, what advice do you give them? Raise your hand, ask questions, get help when you need it, figure out who can make you better as in teach you some stuff you don't know. Someone with a little more experience will help you look around a corner. Understanding where and how tech is impacting business, you would definitely want to focus on that. It helps to understand where and how any business actually makes money. I mean, I think a lot of people, whether you're running a client engagement or whether you're a creative person, do you get deep enough into how the gears connect to the gears around what's really driving the business? So here's our last advice question. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? The best advice I got when I was in my 20s was to sort of stop trying to kind of boil the ocean and get it all done in one go and to focus on two or three big things that you would do in a given 12-month period. And the other great advice I got, probably in my early 30s, is to try and carve out time to step away for long enough to reflect, to actually think and figure out some of the bigger cross-currents. As we wrap up, we always end the math and magic with a shout-out. You've seen the great analytical people. You've seen the great creatives up close. You're a history buff. You've read about them. Who gets your shout out as the most analytical marketer or business person, the math person? Alan Turing. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty darn good one. It's the first time someone said that. So let's go to the creative side. Who's the greatest creative, the magician? I guess you'd probably go, you know, Steve Jobs. He's been mentioned before. Philippe, it's been great having you here. Congrats on all your success and thanks for sharing the stories behind it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.